I chose a passage from the book of Acts, chapter 20, starting at verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know that from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials, which came upon me through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account to be dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. This morning I'm going to do something a little different. I thought that perhaps a time of testimony might be nice. My testimony. So you get to know me a little bit better. It was kind of difficult to um, squeeze 70 years of life into a message of this length so we're going to see the do the best we can so I'm doing something that I was told not to do which is do a springboard message that means you take the scriptures and you you read it and you spring from it to something entirely different so so we're going to look back at my life now this could sound self-serving in a sense that you know why would I want to do that and I really don't but it felt like I wanted to share some things with you. And so you get a little insight into the pathway I took coming here. And uh, perhaps along the way we might be able to see some of the principles that I've learned, sometimes the hard way. This is a, uh, a journey from Hawaii to Alabama. And it's uh, been an interesting journey, certainly. And uh, this is a picture that um, I've seen many times walking up and down this street. This is Aya Heights Drive. And uh, actually there's a street on the right that uh, my dad built a house. We lived there for a number of years during my middle school years. So this is, this is home. This is like uh, going back a little bit in my mind. So... How is this format going to be? Well, it's going to be kind of like, um, kind of messy. Uh, I thought maybe I would try to illustrate how this is going to go. And it's kind of like this. I'm going to go and I'm going to maybe follow a line of thought and then jump back. Uh, so then, you know, so it could be there and I'll point to, yeah, it's going to be confusing. Then never, don't worry about it. Just take it as it comes, okay. Uh, well, this is, um, this is an aerial view of uh, Pearl Harbor. And if you can see that little red balloon kind of up there, 
99-1770 Willie Lau Place. That's where I grew up. And uh, we had a wonderful view of uh, Pearl Harbor. Here's a close-up view of the house. This was uh, our lot. It went all the way down to a river in this valley area. It looks, doesn't look that steep, but it was pretty steep. So as a little kid, it was really not that easy to negotiate that uh, climbing up and down that hill. But it doesn't look like much from, from this angle. But that's where I, I grew up. Now, a little bit of my family. This is my mom. And I guess that's me. And my dad. My mom is a very unusual person. In uh, poorer Chinese families, the daughters usually had to go to work. They would have to quit school around the eighth, ninth grade because the idea was that uh, girls, when they grow up, they get married, they leave, and uh, they stay pretty much with the husband's family. So girls don't have that much value. So while they're with us, we, make, we get them out to work and support the family. And that was normal. But my mother was not normal in the sense that she wanted an education. So she argued and, you know, spoke to my grandmother, saying, I want to finish school. Please let me finish school. And she said, I, I worked during the summer, and she worked at the Dole Cannery, Pineapple Cannery, which was very difficult, long hours, 12 hours shifts, I think. And she would save up enough money to give to my grandma and enough money to pay for whatever needs she had. And she graduated from high school, very unusual. And she was a National Honor Society student, so she was smart. I don't know what happened to me, but my dad, my dad did have to quit school about um, grade eight. But he was a very practical man, knew a lot of different things. He was like a, a jack-of-all-trades. He could do carpentry, he could do masonry work. He was a licensed electrician and worked at the Public Works Center in Pearl Harbor as an electrician. But he also was, went to trade school as a mechanic. So he knew a lot of things and he built the houses. That house that you saw in Wulilao Place, he built that. Now I came with him, but I was little. So I was playing in the sand and he was working, so I didn't help much there. Now, this is my grandmother, my dad's side. And uh, she was very Chinese, you can tell. Um, we didn't communicate very well as far as uh, she knew only Chinese and I knew only English. And we would sit on the stoop and, and I would open up my child craft book and I would read her something or point to something and she would talk to me in Chinese and point to something. But somehow we were connecting. It was like, this is fun, you know. Okay. So um, she was a member of the First Chinese Church of Christ, um, uh, United Church of Christ Church, and so was my father. Here's me again. Um, this is my grandmother on my mother's side, my, the one my mom had to bargain with. And uh, there I am sitting there. In those days, the, the houses were not well kept, uh, especially in the poorer areas. So they didn't have the kind of money to, to hire someone or to actually do repairs. So the, the houses kind of tended to get dilapidated. Now in Hawaii, things are maybe a little different from how they are in Huntsville or, or Alabama in general. Because there's a kind of different religious atmosphere going on. 
because a lot of immigrants come from different countries, they bring not only their different languages and so forth, but they bring with them their own religious beliefs. So a lot of uh, pagan religions, a lot of uh, idolatry, and even with this little walkway that goes into the Chinese cemetery, there's a lot of things that happen because uh, many of the Chinese believed in ancestor worship and they would bring food to the graves and uh, leave it there. The story goes that this Chinese man was bringing food to the graves to honor the ancestors. This Caucasian man took a look and said, uh, <laughs> when is your dearly departed going to come up and eat that food? The Chinese man turned and said, well, about the same time he, your friend comes up and sniffs your flowers. I guess it all works out. Anyway, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a way to send off the dearly departed. Part of it is that you need to supply them with necessary uh, resources for the next life. So they would actually have money that they would burn. Not real money, but like sometimes it would just be red paper uh, cut up into some size. Uh, later on, they got much fancier. They actually made it look like money. And they would put it in a bowl like this, uh, in a rather crude manner, burn it, and supposedly the money would go into the next life, into the spirit world. I don't know how they knew that, but that's what the priest said. Now, sometimes they'd have something larger, like a little furnace. You can see that uh, they're throwing in larger sums. But uh, I guess the Buddhist priest began to see that this was a real, you know, uh, money-making proposition. So they offered a lot of other things after a while. I didn't see this, but you can actually buy a house for your daily departed. You can buy servants and other things and then burn it. And it's supposed to transfer over to the next life. Now, if you really wanted to, you know, help them, you could buy them a condo, I guess. <laughs> burn and get up there. Then I guess your auntie, uncle, whatever, could um, rent it out. I don't know how that works. And why do you need money there? Are there stores that you have to eat? Uh, when you run out of the money, what happens there? A lot of questions left unanswered. Anyway, here's a person. I didn't know this until I saw this picture. I said, look, they even made you know, these cars that are huge. Put it into the furnace. And that's supposed to translate to the next life. Are they different sizes of spirits? You know, you have the big ones for the big cars and the small ones for the little... I don't get it. And here's the mansion. You can buy them a mansion. So that's good, I guess. You say, How big is that mansion? Well, take a look. That's, a, that's the size of a person next to it. So it's a pretty big thing. It probably costs a lot of money. That goes into the coffers, so I guess the Buddhist monks, I don't know what they do with that. What is this all about? Why are they doing this? And why is it, where's a compelling reason to do this for your loved one? Besides, you know, that they're loved ones, but there's something about this that I began to catch fairly early in my growing up period. They did this because of fear. The fear was that if you don't supply your loved one, with necessary money, resources, houses, servants, whatever it is, and they go up to the next life, all the other spirits will mock them 
tease them. And they would be so embarrassed, they'll come back to haunt you. And you don't want that to happen, do you? You want to stay on the other side. So that's one of the things. It was a fear-driven religion. Because, you, you know, you didn't want, you know, Uncle John to come back. And I picked up this verse. I thought, um, this is interesting. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says, that through death, he, Jesus, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I think that was it. Satan used the fear of death that somehow your loved one could come back. You don't want that to happen. Make sure you provide for them all the necessary needs on the other side. You know, money, houses, servants, things like that. Cars. So do the cars run on gas or what? In the next slide. I don't... This is the First Chinese Church of Christ. Still there. This is a church that my grandmother and my father were members of. Notice the Chinese architecture. I was told that the, the roofs that slant upward like that have a purpose. Because they claim that when the demons come to attack you, I guess, inside the church, they'll come down, they'll hit the roof and slide off. So that, you know, it protects you. Isn't that weird? Do, can they come back, though? You know, avoid that little section? I don't know. Are demons that dumb? Like, let's go slide. Uh, I don't get it. But, you know, that's part of it. It's just all the superstition stuff that people believe. I mean, where do they make up this stuff? Oh. My elementary school. Alva Scott Elementary School. Um, I entered when I was in the third grade. I went to a private school, first few years of elementary school, grade school. So when I got to the third grade, they had to test me to make sure that I had the necessary skills, like reading skills, that I needed to enter into public school. And I flunked. I, they found out I couldn't read. What happened to all that education that my parents paid for? Well, apparently... I would listen to my friends read. They would read the primer. I'd memorize it. And then when it was my turn, I'd just recite it. Somehow I knew what page or whatever. I don't know. And I got away with two years of faking it. When I get to the place where they shoved this primer in front of me and said, Read this. I had no clue. Because I'd never heard that one before. So I didn't, I didn't have it memorized. So uh, they said, We're going to have to hold him back. Unless you can do something to, to get them up to speed. So my mom got a book on phonics. Do they teach phonics anymore? Boy, she grilled me all summer. And I took that test and I passed. I made it. But that's my mom. She was, you know, really for education and didn't want her little boy, her firstborn, to be <laughs> set back, even in the third grade. That was not good. I had a high school where I went to high school. It's a nice school. It's a um, kind of, you know, just normal high school in the islands, I guess. 
This is the Manoa campus of the University of Hawaii, pretty large. It took you a while to go from one end of the campus to the other. And if you had a class from one side to the other, you really had to move. So sometimes they would use bicycles to get from one to the other. And, and uh, that's where I went after high school. I was really tired of school. I thought, you know, 12 years of school, I'm done. I, I, I don't want to go to more school. So first semester was okay. Second semester, I, I took my books, I got into my car, and I went to the movies. I'm not proud of that, but I had a good time. By that time, you know, Vietnam was raging. I said, I don't want to be an infantry person. How am I going to do this? So I joined the Navy. Yeah. Brilliant, huh? Figure on a boat, you're safer than, you know, up front and personal with the Viet Cong. And so they gave me a, a, a test. Usually they have a test before you enter. They said, hmm, got a high score. Let's send them to a school. <sighs> oh, I was trying to get away from school. So they sent me to Naval Air Station uh, for technicians, electronic technicians in Memphis, Tennessee, in a little town of, called Millington. I spent six months there learning aviation electronics technician work. I graduated with a specialty in radar. I didn't know much about radar, but I guess I did it well enough to be designated a radar repairman. I'm glad I didn't have to actually do that because I don't know what would have happened. There I am, working in the uh, mess hall. They call it that because... It gets messy, I guess. And then the brilliance of the military sent me back to Hawaii to serve the rest of my tour. Naval Air Station, Barbers Point. You know, join the Navy and see your hometown. <laughs> yes. that's, uh, that's what happened. So I got to go home at night and just drive to work like normal, except I wore a Navy uniform. And during that time, I know that I was searching. I tried to live a good life. I'd gone to church every now and then, but I didn't know the gospel. And uh, uh, as much as I tried to live a, a good, clean life, I didn't go out drinking or anything. Uh, we would help some of the other students at, and, in Memphis when they came into the barracks drunk as a skunk. And they'd be slumped down on the floor. We'd try to get them up and, you know, give them a cold shower, get them ready to go to classes. But um, there's still something missing. I said, I know what it is. I'm going to go back to church. Because there are not a lot of girls on base the waves are not very good, and, and, and they don't care about us lower-ranking guys. So, church has girls. <sighs> Talk about, you know, your, your very lowly and fleshly motivation. But, you know what? God even uses that sometimes, because He brought me to church. And in that, there was this, um, yeah, I certainly wasn't a believer I would say I was an agnostic. That means I didn't know if God existed, but as a soft agnostic, I was willing to talk about it. 
you know, give me some proof. Show me God exists. And maybe I'll think about it. Well, this couple, Jane, uh, June and Walt McKeeson, I don't get them wrong. Walt McKeeson became kind of the father figure, a spiritual father like Paul and Timothy. And he was really the first person that I observed that really seemed to live the Christian life like I thought, you know, that makes sense. And not sort of holier than thou or wear the robes or whatever it is. But just a really neat guy. And uh, he was an architect before. And he just sort of didn't go to Bible college or anything. But just knew the scriptures. Was a great guy. So, you know, I went and joined the college and career group. And on one of the retreat camps to the Big Island, to a little place called Kamuela. They, um, Walt had this speaker. His name was Leroy Imes. Yeah, he uh, became head, I guess, of the Navigators, if I'm not mistaken. He presented the gospel during that retreat camp. So clear, so compelling, so it made so much sense that I trusted Christ at that retreat camp. And that was the beginning of my um, walk with the Lord. Now, there are a number of people that had in, you know, impact upon my life. Some I met personally, some I just knew because they wrote books. The first person was Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey wrote the book, Late Great Planet Earth. And that was my first passion, to study Bible prophecy. Oh, I just loved it. I would pick up every book I could get, study prophecy. And then, um, Josh McDowell came down to Hawaii and had a seminar. I went to the seminar, I heard about him. I loved it. Apologetics. That was my next passion. Oh, I loved that. And I bought his book, you know, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Poured over that. Because so, I wanted to be able to answer people. I wanted people who had questions or, you know, things that they asked that uh, tried to trap Christians or whatever. I, should, I wanted to be able to answer them. Because I was one of those. I, wanted, I actually had a book when I was not a believer. It, called, it was called 500 Contradictions in the Bible. And then I would take it to my Sunday school class and I would pick out one of those. And I would say, what about this? To my Sunday school teacher. And most Sunday school teachers are not equipped to answer those kind of questions. And so he would, you know, well, the Word of God says, and I'm going, no, 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 that's not, no, I'm not asking that, but I'm, and pretty much for a while, I just thought, that's just nonsense. They obviously don't have answers. But becoming a Christian, I wanted to be one that had answers. If somebody asked me those questions, I wanted to be able to answer. So that was the second influential person. Dr. Walter Martin came to Hawaii, had a um, conference. He was a very you know, was expert on the cults and so forth. We have a lot of cults in Hawaii, uh, primarily Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. They come to your door pretty much every week, and most people just kind of hide. I heard, you know, oh, we just turn off the lights. And when they knock, we just don't answer. But Dr. Martin said, no, those are ready-made opportunities that you should take. Bring them in and welcome them in. Show them the love of Christ. Offer them some water, whatever. For Mormons, you don't offer them Coke, just to leave that out. But I just loved that. It was kind of a part of the apologetics, but a whole different branch. You know, cult apologetics. And I just 
I just bought his tapes and I just listened to them over and over again. Well, as a as a, a Christian young man, and now kind of um, back home, it was necessary because my parents were saying, "You got to continue your education." I said, "Oh, you know, re reapply, get back into you know University of Hawaii." And I spent another year or so at the University of Hawaii, getting you know all this humanism and evolution and stuff. It's like, wow, this is just not, not very profitable. Everything seemed to be it evolved, this evolved. Even, even um, religion had an evolution. Well, man first were atheists, you know. They didn't know about God, they didn't have any idea. But then they kind of looked at the sky and the sea and the trees and they made up of gods and goddesses and so forth. So they were polytheists. And then after that, they kind of got more sophisticated and then they said, ah, I think there's just one God. But you know what? The Bible's just the opposite. It starts off, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One God. And then it's not until later that we see this, this concept of multiple gods and goddesses. And it's not until Psalm 14 that we hear David saying, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Atheism comes later. But evolution says, no, it came first. See, they got it backwards because they don't have God's revelation. Anyway, I uh, felt like I needed more. And I found that there's a Bible college, international college and graduate school, later to be known as Hawaii Theological Seminary. I said, ah, oh, this is great. They take GI Bill. So I transferred much to the displeasure of my parents like what is this this is bible this is i'm studying about i'm studying the bible anyway so why should i just do it and get credit for it i mean it's made sense to me but um it's interesting that the um the president and founder of the school he was a um, conservative baptist his name is uh, dr james cook he was actually a direct descendant of captain cook of you know the Discovering the island type sandwich islands fame. You can kind of see there's a certain resemblance. In fact, in his younger years, he looked just like that without the wig. Anyway, I just loved it. It's like in this school, they correlated all the different disciplines and, and like uh, English literature and showed, you know, how certain poems were written by men who try to elevate uh, the idea of man, Invictus, oh, I am the captain of my fate, I'm the master of my soul, something like that. It was like, you know, wow, how humanistic can you get? And others are very, very good. And they, they gave very insightful poetry and literature to the nature of man and God. So, around that time, I'm going to Bible college, I'm having a great time. A pastor comes to replace our old pastor who had been there for a long time, years, decades. He was retiring. And so we needed a new pastor. We had a number of people. And uh, this one that actually stood out, his name was Pastor Ron Miller. Said, that sounds um, like he's a Caucasian. Yes, he was. Why didn't you guys choose a Chinese guy? Because the Chinese guys couldn't preach like this guy could preach. And I found out he's from Dallas Seminary. He said, oh... 
Yeah, I know about Dallas, Howard Hendricks, stuff like that. Now, the problem that uh, Pastor Ron had was that um, um, he had family on the mainland. So when his mom and dad started to get older or problems health-wise, after nine months at First Chinese Church, he stepped down to leave, go back, take care of his parents. That's what happens to a lot of mainland pastors. They don't last that long. But the one thing he did, maybe God sent him just for that written, I don't know, probably not, but to me, that he said, you need to go to Dallas Seminary. I said, really? I heard a lot about that. A lot of Greek, a lot of Hebrew stuff. I said, yeah, you'll love it. I think he lied. But anyway, it was hard work. But from that, I did go. There's my graduating class. There's evidence. See? Where are you? Well, right there. I'm wearing a turtleneck. Most times you wear, you know, coat and tie. I didn't. I'm still rebellious to some extent. There I am. Say, you sure? Yeah. That's me. <laughs> so, um, while in seminary, this TV show came on. Jim Henson's The Muppet Show. So what does this have to do with anything spiritual? Oh, it does. Just wait. Anyway, I watched the show. I loved it. And I saw some of the puppets look like stuff I could do. You know, they're very foam rubber type things. And I said, I bet you I could make a puppet out of foam rubber. So I found some, uh, you know, thrown away furniture, took the foam rubber out, made a puppet. I made several and I thought, this is pretty cool. I mean, you can make the faces scrunch up and do all kinds of stuff. And uh, my, my wife, Lana, got to meet this uh, wife uh, from one of my classmates, Carrie Clifton. And somehow the word got to Carrie Clifton that I did puppets. So he said, I want to see some of the puppets you do. And so I, ah, here they are. Well, that's cool. Can I borrow? Oh, yeah, borrow. Take it. Won't you help us? What? We're doing a show for Dr. Hendry's class on the family. We need an extra puppeteer. Why don't you join us? Oh, no, I don't do puppets. I just make them. I don't do puppets. One of the things you learn about God is never say never. And he just sort of kept at me and said, uh, come on. So I said, all right, all right. One shot deal. And I, I don't know. I did my part. It was, I don't remember much. When they said, come out and, you know, see, let everybody see you. I just peeked out and I, I didn't like being the center stage. So I said, okay, that's it. S my first speaking engagement when I got back from seminary was at a day school in Hilo, Hawaii. Lana's sister was the principal and she asked me to do a puppet show. So what is this? My first speaking engagement. And I got to do a puppet show. So we made a puppet. We did I, I don't remember what it was that we said, but it's okay. Enough with the puppets. That's enough. And somehow, see, when, when God has a purpose, he's not going to let you go. He's going to keep hounding you, I guess, the hound of heaven. Anyway, the head of um, CEF, uh, John Deco, he was the director, he found out I did puppets. Like, what, twice. But he said, he came up to me and said, um, well, I'd like you to help us do the teacher training, do the puppet section. Could you do that? 
Well, yeah, I guess so. I got some puppets. I can, I can put something together. Sure. Well, year after year, that's what he wanted me to do. And year after year, I got a little bit better at it. And after a while, I was teaching how to do puppets and doing performances. In fact, toward the end, we formed a professional puppet performance company. We called it the Hawaiian Puppet Moving Company. It was named after a TV show, a local TV show called the Hawaiian Moving Company. I actually called the producer and said, we want to name our, our puppet team after kind of like your show, but not. Is that going to cause any problems? And he said, no, no, as long as they don't confuse your puppet team with our TV show. I said, I don't think so. So that was fine. That was our name. And we actually got to do four television shows. Half-hour shows. And uh, we had the cameraman come in, two cameras set up. And we worked months on this. It was one of the biggest things we did. It's amazing what God will do. When he has, you know, he's got you and you're open to it. You're maybe not always, you know, seeing the plan right away. <laughs> because I got this plan. I got such a deal for you. And, and it's like, I look back, why didn't I see it? But sometimes we just have to be convinced. But do you have that sense that, you know, I just, I don't want to say no to God. Whatever he has, I'm going to do it. You never know. It comes out to be stu- really cool stuff. Ah, back to Dallas. What? Back and forth. Yes, this is important. So what does this have to do with um, anything? The Riverwalk in San Antonio, Texas. Well, during seminary, there was a little Chinese church in San Antonio. Little Chinese church that wanted one of the seminarians to speak at their youth camp. I said, uh, they, they called me. I was not the first one they called. I don't know how many they had to go through before they got to me. But when they came to me, I said, oh, sure. Sounds good. They wanted me to do the life of David. Said, sure. Now, during that time, we're going to Northwest Bible Church. And Pastor Jim Rose Jr. would do these monologues. He would dress up as a character from the Bible. And he would do the message... As the character. And we loved that. Lana and I just loved it. And we looked at the Oh, he's doing a monologue this morning. All right. So I thought, oh, that's neat. Then when I got the offer, I said, what if I did a monologue? Now, I didn't have any real acting ability. Let me tell you. Nothing. Nada. I took an acting class at the University of Hawaii. And I lasted two weeks. I quit because it was just too much. I said, no way. I can't do that kind of stuff. I just felt so inhibited. But somehow, I thought, maybe I can do something, you know, dressed up, kind of hidden under some makeup. And so I went and um, I designed this monologue. And the first night was the night I was going to share this. I was going to do Nathan the prophet as he confronts David with his sin with Bathsheba. I'm standing in the foyer and they're in the, the you know, sanctuary and I'm looking at a mirror and I'm going, that's not going to fool anybody. Terrible makeup job. And I forgot everything. What's my first line? Oh my goodness, I don't remember. 
What's the outline? Outline. I don't remember. It was like blank. Completely. I'm going, that's just great. Oh, wow. And I'm going to go up pretty soon. And sure, you know, sure enough, they called. You know, where's the guest speaker? That was just the clue or cue. So I walked down. I opened the double doors. I walked down in my makeup and my costume. And I turned around. I said, I'm going to have to apologize to them. I have to say, sorry, I had this great idea. But, you know, I'm just going to tell you the story. And I turn around and the first line comes to me. And I give it. Second line comes. I give that one. And they started to come back. I did the whole thing. I said, oh, oh man. After it all, they said, we're going to take the kids to a little, you know, campfire type thing around by a small lake. You can just relax, take off your makeup, just relax. You don't have nothing else you have to do. I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, Lord, this was a big mistake. I'm not geared for this. This is the last, this first and last time I'm going to do this kind of stuff. I sat there and I took off the makeup and, that, you know, that spirit gum and stuff, it smells for days. They came back and they said, you know, this is pretty neat. What happened was the kids had been having some problems with each other, not getting along, kind of fighting and arguing. But your message brought them to a point of saying, we've got to take care of this. We've got to take care of this. This is sin. And they, they confessed their sin. They made things right. They were rejoicing together. And then I said, really? That's got to be God. That was not me. I was stumbling through that thing. I know that it's like, wow. He used that. This feeble attempt at doing a monologue. God used that. It's just absolutely astounding. So, from that point on, I started doing monologues every now and then. And I guess, I hope, I got better at it. But the Lord opens up doors you never know, you could never guess or imagine. And maybe even feel, nope, that's not for me. I don't have that talent or that ability. He'll give you the ability. That's what he's calling you into. Never say never to God. My first pastor coming back after the puppet show in, in Hilo was a Hawaiian church. I mean, really Hawaiian. Not because it was in Hawaii, but um, this, was a, this is an old Hawaiian church. It started in the 1830s. And that uh, little engraving on the top there, that's the original building. It was a grass shack on Kaneohe Bay. It was the oldest uh, Protestant church on the windward side of the island. That's historic. I got to pastor that church. And I learned a lot. Because coming from a Chinese church where you don't show affection, stuff, you know, you're pretty much the inscrutable oriental. You know, you don't go up and hug people. You know, there's no kissing. No, of course not. But the Hawaiian people were just so open. The first time I came to speak, they gave me hugs and kissed me on the cheek. And I'm going, whoa, what's going on? Um... Is this a, how it's going to be all, every Sunday? But they called me. I, my first message at that church was the entire book of Revelation. <laughs> Think about that. Wouldn't that be a deal breaker? You go, we don't want this guy. No. They called me. Because they liked it. I, I don't know. But I, it was interesting. And 
it brought me out of my comfort zone because I had to accept the fact that they're very open and affectionate people. Very warm. Very talented. I mean, these people could sing. They didn't take any voice lessons. They just could sing from the, you know, like babies would sing. From the, oh, my goodness. It's so, I mean, they sang beautifully. Like a professional. And there was one particular, one of my deacons, uh, he was a professional. I sang with um, Danny Kilikini and others and played guitar. He didn't know any, couldn't read music, but he knew the chords. He was just, just amazing. Very talented people. And it pushed me further to try different things. Uh, somehow God has a way of doing that. That's my congregation. I could point to all the interesting people and, and spend another sort of day telling you about them. But wonderful group. But uh, after 28 years there, it was uh, circumstances indicated it was time to step down. I didn't want to, but somehow it just was at that point the right thing to do. And here I am, a pastor and a seminary professor, and yet, you know, I had no place to go. Now, I did go to a dinosaur museum. I love dinosaur stuff. And um, I was uh, taken to a seminar by Henry Morris. He was giving out, you know, evidence for scientific evidence for the Bible. I, at the time, as an agnostic, way back, see, I'm jumping all around. But as an agnostic, I just thought, this science and Bible don't go together. You know, there's science and then there's the Bible. But hmm, he showed me otherwise. It's like, look at this. Look at what the Bible's saying and look at the evidence. And I was hooked. I said, man, I love this scientific creationism. And so that's another of my passions. And that's where, um, here's a, a sample of my notes taken uh, here, actually. One of the, um, yeah, let's see, oh yeah, Answers in Genesis. This is how I take notes. I, um, I draw my notes pretty much. <laughs> Helps me remember stuff. I did it all through seminary. You should see my seminary notes. Oh, maybe you shouldn't. Anyway, <laughs> it was just, just, I mean, I actually distracted some of my fellow students. I was doing drawing. and I can't sit next to you anymore. What? It was a guy from Guatemala. I was sitting next to him. He said, I can't sit next to you. Why? He says, because I get distracted watching you draw. Okay, you don't have to watch. <laughs> anyway, I just, that's how I remember stuff. That's, I guess, how I passed seminary. Cartooning. <laughs> um, yeah, as I mentioned, I started teaching at the seminary, as a seminary professor. But the value of that was not that I had this wonderful title. I got to meet some of the wonderful people that came through. We were getting some great names to come and do modulars. And my job as a college dean at that time was to see if we could get some of these people to come and do a one-week modular course at the seminary. This is the same school that I graduated from with my bachelor's. I got to meet uh, Jill and Stuart Briscoe, Dr. Haddon Robinson, and this guy, Roger Beckwith. Yeah, who is Roger Beckwith? You don't know Roger Beckwith? Well, anyway, you probably know his teacher. His teacher was C.S. Lewis. He was a student and disciple of C.S. Lewis. We had him come from England to, to uh, give the um, uh, address for the graduates. 
Well, that's cool. You get to hobnob it. And the wonderful thing is that I get to sit down and kind of pick their brains and ask them questions. So you say, well, you know a lot. Just because I ask a lot of questions. Because there's a lot of stuff I don't know. I still don't know a lot of stuff. But when you ask questions of people that have lots of information, you get encouraged and, and uh, edified. That was the best thing. And then, having to step down, I don't know what to do. I sent my resume to churches around in Hawaii. I even had uh, one of the missionaries that I went to school with. She said, we have a church. I, uh, we minister in Hong Kong. <laughs> she said, we don't have a pastor. You should, uh, I said, well, send them my resume. Uh, Hong Kong, wow. I wasn't sure about that. But a friend of mine, his name was Fred King, happened to be the district um, superintendent of the Southern District, which includes Alabama. He came to speak at a friend's church. And my friend said, you should come and talk to him. So I know Fred, yeah. So I was trying to make ends meet. I was doing a funeral on that Sunday. I rushed back after the funeral. I just came in just as the service ended. But I got to talk to Fred. He said, I think I might have a place for you. Are you open to going to the mainland to serve? Never say never. So I said, well, I guess so. You know, sounds okay. And uh, weeks later, he said, they have a church for you. They're very interested. Really? Okay. Tell me about it. And I went and candidated and they accepted me. And so... He took off from the Hawaiian Islands, 4,365 miles to Alabama. And uh, my first Alabama, oh, I had to bring my dog too, so I had to have him in there. Max is a 100-pound American bulldog. We had to put him in the cargo hold. And, uh, but he made it. He did okay. There was a wonderful group of people at Clay Christian Fellowship. And it just... It, the area, I was so amazed to see that there were trees all around. And we were landing in Birmingham, and there were just a lot of trees. I didn't imagine Alabama having being so green. It looks almost greener than Hawaii. Uh, no palm trees, but hey, let's do without some things. Wonderful. And they just welcomed us, made us feel at home, took us around. I got to have, for the first time, fried pickles. It was different. It was okay. So I spent a couple years there. But um, things sometimes happen. Uh, I remember a lot of interesting things. One of the ladies wanted us to um, host a luau. She said, I wanted you to do a luau. Lana was back at, in Hawaii still getting the house ready to be sold. So the person who does the cooking was not there. I don't do cooking. Not that kind of cooking. I can fry stuff, but, you know, pickles even. But, and it's just like, I had to wait. But finally, when Lana came, we got settled. She said, when are we going to do the luau? And so, actually, we did one. Kind of as an outreach. We had people invited and uh, had a luau. We had two while I was there. Then the church had to close. This is something that was not in my plans. I didn't want to go to church that would close. You never do. You. What happened? 
This church was doing well, but it had a lot of retired people, mostly retired folk. Had no young couples, basically no children. We had a children's ministry, but it was for kids that were outside. You know, they weren't members of the church. We didn't have parents that went to the church. And it just couldn't sustain itself. We couldn't get any new people. People would come in, they would enjoy the service, but there was no Sunday school. There was no place for their kids. They didn't have, we didn't have anything beyond just the service. You can't survive like that. And so the, the board had to go through a very difficult time deciding whether they're going to try to stay open or close. And they decided it would just, they would close. One of the hardest things I ever had to go through as far as seeing the, you know, the pain on these people's faces that the church had to close after all these years. And I felt bad because I'm the one, the pastor that, you know, was there with the church closed. Like, did I do something wrong? Man. But the interesting thing, I think, is that, you know, God showed me something that when I look at the congregation here, we have older folks, retired, and younger folks. We have kids. We have young couples. That is healthy. That's important. If you have one side, one group, like especially an older church with older people, with no young people, that's like, it's going to go. It's going to die. And that's where you... This ministry is so important. If you are, you know... uh, Desires to see his church grow, where, whatever age limit or age you are at, reach out, tell people, invite them. And that was important. You need to just make sure that there's others coming in, that there is growth. The Lord provided another church, though. Fred King said, I got another church for you. Uh, we're playing musical churches here. What is this? And uh, he installed me in uh, Living Hope. And I stayed there a couple of years. But certain things took place that, again, it's like, I'm going to have to step down. I don't get it. It was part of it that the church felt that some of the things that my family was going through was, was very burdensome. And that they felt, I shouldn't have the burden of ministry on my back with all these things, other things happening. And so... the graciously said um, we we were just going to have you step down so that you don't have the burden of ministry they didn't understand that that was my life that I got up every morning because I knew I was going to be with the family of God my family I had to leave my other family back in Hawaii but I had a family that I could call my own they were they were closer than some of my literal family but to not have them as part of my life was so hard. Anyway, it was one of those most difficult times. It was kind of like a wilderness wandering, just wandering in, in the dry, arid places like Israel in the Negev desert. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. Nothing seemed to work. Every place I submitted my resume... Nothing. They didn't even send me a letter like, thank you for your resume, we appreciate your interest in our church, uh, search committee is going to you know, and tell me a little bit about what the process is. Nothing. Nada. We visited a lot of churches. 
But what happened was that uh, we came to this one little church called Calvary Bible. Walked in, Tom Park greeted us at the door, saw me carrying a Ryby Study Bible. Noted that uh, that was his professor. I said, that's my professor too. And I thought, this is home. I like this place. And it was like suddenly I had a family, it seemed. I wasn't sure right away, but it was like, hey, you've got a Dallas graduate here. I'm here too. And so that wandering sort of came to an end. And when I was first asked to teach a Sunday school class, I said, oh, man, oh, I'm back in, the, back in the saddle again. But there's some things that just happen. God wants you to give your life to him. There are times when you don't know what's going to happen, what the, rev- uh, the, the pathway is going to take. And I, I remember this poem, and I thought I'd just read parts of it to you. It's called The Road Not Taken, probably very famous. Um, Robert Frost it begins with two roads diverged in a yellow wood and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood but he ends this with I should be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence two roads diverge in the wood and I I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference when you take the path that Jesus wants you to take, it'll make all the difference. When you open your life to Him, you say, uh, very early in my discipleship process, I said, uh, are you willing to give God a blank check? They said, oh, that's scary. A blank check, really? But I lived by that. There are times I had no clue what He was going to do with that blank check, and it was a little fearful. But that was the best way. That was the only way. Um, so, it was one of those interesting life choices that made all the difference. So, even in the darkness, even in the wilderness wanderings, God's presence is always there. His light shines, guiding you, keeping you where you need to be. Even when you go through a time where you have no clue what He has in mind, there's something ahead, something that He will bring to pass. God will always show us the way to his will. Sometimes it's roundabout, sometimes it's, it seems accidental. Stumble over it. But he knows his, what he's doing. Thank you for the time that we can spend. I, I, I've probably gone much too long and I don't know if I should have sang this song. But I, just, I felt like this is something that we need to do. We need to make sure that we're in your hands. We follow you. We take the path that you have prescribed for us. That we never say never to you. And that we open our hearts and say, do with us as you will. Make us your servants. Give us that grace. Lead us to people to, to share the gospel. To make sure that this remains a healthy, vibrant church. So that we'll have a great time before your throne someday. Reminiscing talking about all the times that you came through for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.